I mentioned in the earlier service that uh, this sermon would probably not be in one of your top ten picks for what you wanted to listen to this morning. I thought I'd tell you that uh, right up front. And I suspect it would probably not be on one of Daniel's uh, countrymen's heart either as one of their top ten things because we don't tend to like to listen to uh, negative discourse about the difficulties we're going to see. And uh, when there are those kinds of things that happen, we think we're going to be exempt. Uh, We don't like to think about the future in terms of warnings, but God knew they needed it. He knew uh, that they needed to be prepared for the jungle they were going to face, and if Daniel and other prophets had not prepared them for that, uh, the jungle would have chewed them up. And so it really is an encouragement to God's people when he warns us about difficulties that we might face. He gives us a realistic perspective on the future. I think um, uh, the, one of the illustrations that came to my mind of how easy it is for us to not want to be prepared or to believe that calamity can happen to us is uh, some of the responses people have made to the uh, year 2000 problem. Some people have spoken of it as the millennium bug or uh, the uh, computer bomb, various things like that. But I was reading uh, an article written by Alfred Smith, who was heading up the team for the Y2K team for a very large uh, telephone company, and he wrote about the denial that existed all through his company, and uh, the former CIO there had asked the managers, you know, are you year 2000 compliant? We need to find out. And they'd all said, yeah, we're compliant, no problems, won't be anything that's going to happen. And uh, this fellow uh, and several others were convinced that was not the case, and it took a year and a half of lobbying to convince the management there really was a problem. And so what they did is they tested uh, the problem. Uh, And uh, as they ran the equipment through various tests, they realized huge problems there, uh, running into the multiple millions of dollars to fix. And it turned out the problem was so big, uh, it was wishful thinking on the part of the managers. Uh, Whether they are right or wrong, and I've got information, if you want to read it, that uh, gives uh, both criticisms as well as uh, plugs for there being a major problem in the year 2000, whether they're right or wrong, uh, prophets of doom like Gary North or our own J.P. Morgan, uh, people don't like to listen to that. They don't like to read about it. They many times will just write them off. And uh, this is not going to be a sermon on the year 2000, but I wanted to use that as an analogy of why Daniel had to give his message, because it was so easy for people to ignore uh, the uh, uh, testimonies of doom and to believe the false prophets who Ezekiel and Daniel talked about were giving messages that God's going to bail you out, he'll take care of you, don't worry about it, there won't be any trouble. They prophesied peace. For years before World War II, Winston Churchill had been warning the uh, the people and had been warning the government that there was a huge threat in Nazi Germany, and he didn't want them trading with them, and he, he was giving all of these warnings, and people just said, you're an old curmudgeon, you're a fool. They just would not believe him. Well, he came out, he was vindicated in the final analysis. But in a similar way, this chapter may, may seem like real tough stuff. I mean, calling unbiblical governments beasts? Uh, using some of the kind of negative language that Daniel uses. And it may seem tough, especially if we are the kind of Christians who have unduly depended upon the government, uh, who have uh, willingly been enslaved to the government, or who have an unbiblical optimism about the government. Uh, many Christians, uh, for example, have felt that um, the republics of Greece and Rome 
uh, formed the basis for America. There are actually many founding fathers said, absolutely not. We don't like that kind. But I think we get a hint from Scripture when Scripture indicates that Greece and Rome, because of their humanistic laws, were actually the recipe for tyranny and injustice. They were not the foundations for the freedom that we have here. Now, the imagery that he uses to give that is very vivid imagery of beasts, vicious beasts who are cruel and tyrannical. Now, we're not going to just look at the negative side because this passage is both negative and positive. What it does is it warns us not to place undue confidence in the government on the one hand, and on the other hand, it says don't get bent out of shape when the beasts begin to act like beasts. That's to be expected from those that are wild beasts. So let's begin in verse 1 and look at the context. Uh, this uh, message uh, came at a time where there was real tough times for Daniel. It says, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. That's when this whole vision uh, came about. And what is significant about those times is that in the nine years since Nebuchadnezzar died, the empire has been co- through constant throes of, of change. And uh, the people wanted uh, to have some kind of stability, and they're willing to give up their freedoms in order to have that stability. Let me just go through some of the background that came up to this time. Upon Nebuchadnezzar's death, his son, Evil Merodach, came to the throne. He only made it two years before he got assassinated. And uh, he was assassinated by Neraglisser, who reigned for four years. Uh, When he died, his uh, young child, Laborosorodach, also known as Labashi Marduk, was placed on the throne. After reigning for nine months, a group of conspirators who was led by Nabonidus beat the child to death, and Nabonidus took over. And Nabonidus, trying to consolidate his power, married either the wife or the daughter, we're not told, uh, we're not quite clear in the secular uh, sources either, uh, either the, the wife or the daughter of uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and Belshazzar is that woman's son. So Belshazzar is both the son of Nebuchadnezzar as well as the son of Nabonidus. Well, Nabonidus, because he worships a different god than was being worshipped in Babylon, he gets ousted, and uh, he's still ruling, but he's ruling from afar, and Belshazzar, he um, uh, goes ahead and he worships Marduk, which was the god of Babylon there. But even from a secular perspective, there was so much turmoil politically and socially and, re- and religiously that it would have been very easy for Christians to feel everything's out of control. And God brings this message to say, no, it's not out of control. I planned this perfectly. It would have been very easy for people to get anxious and worried. What is wrong with these citizens that they're giving up all of their freedoms? There's more and more centralized government. Things are getting worse and worse. And he brings this word of encouragement. He says in verse 1, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. God spoke to him in this way to bring encouragement into his life. And he was doing it in two ways. First of all, he showed to Daniel that on the near horizon, the next uh, few hundred years, there were going to be dark times, but that God was orchestrating and controlling every aspect of those dark times to promote his purposes. And then it gives the picture on the long haul how Messiah was going to reign, was going to ascend to his throne, and was going to rule over all the nations and how all nations would submit to him. Let me just give you two examples that we'll get to later, but we'll just read the verses. 
Uh, verse 13 speaks of the ascension of Christ after uh, He rose from the dead. He ascended to the right hand of the Father onto His throne. Verse 14 gives the result. Then to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Real encouraging words. Look at verse 27. It says, Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve Him. And so he's saying there that not only will all nations eventually serve the Lord, they're going to obey his word. And not even the bestial kingdoms that are being described in this chapter can stop that. It speaks of the power, the might of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was an encouraging word. In the last phrase of verse 1, he says, I want you to write this down. This is going to go into the canon uh, so that not you only will be encouraged, but the whole church of Jesus Christ can find that encouragement. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. So that's the context in which this, this dream of encouragement came to God's people. But secondly, uh, we find out a second way in which this uh, word was encouraging. It was encouraging because it clearly portrays God as in complete control over every facet of what was happening in those kingdoms. For example, in verse 2 it says, Daniel spoke saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. So it's speaking here about a wind that's whipping up the, the waters into big waves, and all of that chaos and that movement ushers four beasts out of that sea. Verse 3, four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. But it's the winds that cause that. That is symbolical. And what I want to do is I want to take apart those symbols so that you can understand it. First of all, the great sea. What does that represent? If you turn with me to Revelation 17, that is a passage that um, uh, is based upon Daniel 7, and it talks about the last, that fourth beast, Rome, coming up from the Mediterranean, from the great sea there as well. And if you just take a look at... Uh, Revelation 17 and verse 15, you can see that it speaks of it being humanity or society in all of its fluxion change. He said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. It's the cultural forces, it's society, it's humanity as a whole, out of which the empires rise. Uh, turn with me to Isaiah 17. Isaiah 17 and verse 12. And this one, uh, too, speaks of these waters being symbolical of that out of which nations uh, arise. And there's several other scriptures, but I think these two ought to be sufficient. Isaiah 17, verse 12. Woe to the multitude of many people who make a noise like the roar of the seas and to the rushing of nations that make a rushing like the rushing of mighty waters. The nations will rush like the rushing of many waters, but God will rebuke them and they will flee far away. Now that in your back of your mind, I want you to turn back to Daniel 7 
and verse 2. And I want you to notice that the chaos and the turmoil among the peoples is caused by the winds of heaven. It's heaven itself that causes this. It says, Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And then it talks about those beasts coming out as a result. It was God who brought about the chaos and the turmoil which various petty tyrants took advantage of to consolidate power. Uh, I've been reading a, a book by Lord Rees-Moss, which is a fascinating uh, study of how there have been movements in history um, and all the different factors such as... Um, um, uh, violence and economics and other social factors that have brought about some of the changes, uh, changes in nations and how powers were aligned. And as I was reading through that book, I was thinking, you can see God's purpose in his hand through all of that, and yet the author is blind to it. Uh, at least he doesn't mention it. If he does know about it, he doesn't mention God's hand behind it at all. But it's so obvious just in the way he's writing that, that God was controlling and moving those for his purposes. And that's what this chapter uh, indicates to us. God is in complete control over all of the things that appear like chaos, appear like those waves being whipped up, and yet God is using them for his purposes. Psalm 65, verse 7 speaks of God as the sovereign, quote, who stilled the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, and the turmoil of the nations. See, if we lose sight of God's sovereignty, we can get into a panic when those forces begin to move and there's changes in societies and governments rise and governments fall. We can grow into a panic. Uh, in Jeremiah 51, it uses the same analogy of uh, movements from one empire to another as the seas of Medo-Persia rolling over Babylon and destroying Babylon. And yet again, it says, God's the one who was doing that. When we are in the water, we can very easily lose sight of the master who controls the storm, can't we? I mean, it's so easy to panic, but during times like that, it's so, so important that we begin to serve God, not begin, that we continue to serve God in those situations rather than serving ourselves and protecting our own hides. God is in control of the Y2K problem. And whether uh, the prognosticators are going to be correct or not, we can't know the future, but we can be assured God is the one who moves in all of those areas. Now, quickly look at some other hints of God's control in uh, Daniel 7, verse 4, talking about the first empire, Babylon. It says, The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man. And a man's heart was given to it. See, those four action verbs there are clearly actions from without the beast. It's not the beast doing it on his own. It is God who was moving Babylon. It was God who humbled Nebuchadnezzar. It was God who turned him into a Christian. It was God who moves these nations. And I think it's so, so important that we keep in mind that um, all, of, all of history is being run by God. Verse 5 implies the same control over the next world empire. It speaks about that bear being raised up on one side in the last uh, uh, sentence there, it says, they said thus to it, arise, devour much flesh. When we can once grasp the truth, God moves cultures. We're in a much better place to appreciate his hand and to benefit 
by, by that knowledge and the way in which we interact in society. If you look at the last phrase in verse 6, you see a similar phrase. Uh, it's uh, not just the beasts taking the governments, taking all of this power on their own. No, God is the one who enabled them to do it. It says, the beasts were before it. Oh, wrong verse. Uh, the beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. God gave uh, those empires their dominion. And I think we need to be convinced the same is true in our own day and age. If America continues to come under further and further judgment, it is God who is sovereignly doing that, no doubt, to wake up the church, to purify the church. One of the things that this book starts with, Daniel 1 verse 2, is that it was the Lord God who gave Jehoiakim, king of Israel, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. And God is the one who, who, who will bring judgment in America if we need judgment uh, through governments and judges and other things like that. But point three says that this passage is also a caution about putting too much trust in human government. And I think a lot of Christians need this reminder. Uh, while Scripture calls us to submit to uh, the government or to obey the government and its lawful injunctions, it is never a call to blindly submit. Nor is it a call to just appreciate everything that the government does. All through the Old and the New Testaments, there is a social interaction where the, the church has to have a prophetic testimony against the evils of culture. And here, it is clear as could be that God himself is calling these nations bestial and vicious in their character. He is calling them to account. And I think it's appropriate to call America to account and saying, you're beginning to act like the beasts in the book of Daniel when you trample on all that is holy, when you refuse to respect God's laws. Perfectly appropriate. Now here's the point of this passage. All bestial governments are either judged by God or tamed by God. Now in verses 9 through 15, next week, we're going to be looking at the taming ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's such an encouragement to know that that is what he is in the business on as he received his kingdom in the first century, and he is not going to finish, the Great Commission will not be finished until the nations are discipled. But he is in the taming business, and it's my hope and my prayer that America would be tamed rather than being judged. Now, there was a sort of taming that went on with the first beast. Verse 4, speaking of Babylon, says, The first was like a lion, had eagle's wings. That's a, a reference to how it started off as a pagan government, uh, being anti-Christian, bestial in its character. And by the way, if you, uh, some of you have perhaps uh, looked at old books on Babylon, you'll see those images of a lion with eagle's wings. You find it all through the frescoes of Babylonian literature. It was a symbol of Babylon, but especially in its religious power because it was a symbol of its gods. And so it's very interesting when it says, I watched till its wings were plucked off. Not only does that speak of the humbling that Nebuchadnezzar had to go through, but it speaks of the, 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 the taking away of the influence of those demonic gods in Babylon. See, as Nebuchadnezzar believed in God and implemented God's laws, there was a breaking off of the power that those demons had in that empire, and that influence lasted for several years. But he goes on, he says, it was lifted up from the earth, made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart 
was given to it. And it's speaking there of how Nebuchadnezzar was brought from a state of insanity. Remember the story? How he was out in the fields, just like a wild animal. God brought him back from that state and he made him into a man clothed in his right mind. That's what the grace of God does. It has a humanizing, uh, in the good sense of the term, a humanizing influence, a taming influence. It brings men and it brings governments back to the purposes God had in Adam and Eve made in the image of God, uh, serving God as they ought to. And to a limited extent, that happened in Babylon. But nine years later, after Babylon, after Nebuchadnezzar died, all of the godly traits were obliterated and there was sudden judgment. Verse 5, and suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, it was raised up on one side. I believe that that is a reference to the fact that Persia had a greater influence than, than the Medes did. It was the Medo-Persian Empire. There was a, a people called the Medes, a people called the Persians. And here's this lopsided bear that's got legs longer on one side than the other. And that's representing the fact that the Medes really were dominating in that culture. But it goes on and it says... Uh, it was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. Those three ribs represent what this Medo-Persian bear had been devouring, the empires that it had conquered. And let me th- go through the three major conquests that Medes and Persians had. It devoured Lydia in 546 B.C. It devoured Babylon in 539 B.C., and Egypt in 525 B.C. Those are the three ribs in its mouth. Now, here's the interesting thing. That was all prophesied years before those events had ever happened. Okay? Uh, He couldn't know. Ordinary person could anticipate this. And when you get to Daniel chapter 8, you're going to see much more detail. This is just hinted at here. And this is one of the reasons why the liberals have hated the book of Daniel so much and have maliciously maligned it for 150 years and more. Because uh, they don't like the fact that there is a God who is sovereign over all, as Daniel portrays God to be, who knows the future, who controls the future, and yet that's an encouragement that we as his people can have. He predicts the future there. The next beast is Greece, verse 6. After this I looked, and there was another like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. Now, the leopard itself is an animal with a great speed, And the wings that are on its back also speak of the speed with which Alexander the Great conquered the whole world for Greece. It's just incredible how fast that Alexander the Great ran over this uh, this world. He goes on, he says, um, the beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. The four heads... Uh, represented the the four generals uh, that uh, the the whole empire was divided up into into four parts. And if you you question that, I'm not going to go into detail on that. Chapter eight, verse eight, uh, talks about the fourfold division of Babylon. But that's what this stands for. Then comes the uh, kingdom, uh, the empire of Rome, in verse seven. <clears throat> After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Now, what made it different, just in the dream itself, 
is that there wasn't any animal in human nature that could look like that. He called the other things that we recognize, you know, lion, uh, a leopard, a bear. But there wasn't anything to describe this. But I think that there were three other differences as well. It was different in that it lasted far, far, far longer than any of the other empires previous to it. Uh, Secondly, it was more powerful and far more extensive than the other empires. And thirdly, it was far more tyrannical and oppressive uh, to human freedoms. And so in the time that's leading up to the time of the Lord Jesus Christ, up to his cross, things are getting worse and worse and worse. There is a degradation of history, as it were. And one of the things I praise the Lord for is that the cross does not repeat history, it reverses history. So many people talk about a history running down just like it did in the Old Testament. Well, if you get to the cross of Christ, there isn't any place it can run down to. It's run down about as far as you can get. Total apostasy. Even his 12 disciples have abandoned him. You know, and you start off with 120 in the upper room. And so what's happening is you've got a decrease down to Christ and the cross of Jesus Christ, praise God, is powerful enough to reverse history. That is the image you need to have in your mind as you look at uh, eschatology. Now, the last phrase there, it had ten horns, refers to the ten kings who ruled over the ten imperial provinces of Rome. And uh, we'll maybe look at that in a little bit more detail when we get um, to verses 15 and following, uh, Lord willing. But I want you to notice one thing, because verse 8 is used so many times by people to prove something that doesn't exist. I want you to notice that verse 8 occurs in the midst of the period that verse 7 is talking about. Okay, during that that kingdom of Rome uh, back in those uh, early centuries. It has to be sometime around the time of Christ because there's no other period in history when there were ten imperial provinces and when there were ten kings. So sometime in in the, the century or so eight, uh, B.C. or the century or so A.D. That's the furthest you could stretch that. Why do I say this? Because you're going to run across so many people. I grew up as one who believed in this. But so many people who hold to some future so-called empire that's called a revived Roman Empire that's separated by 1,500 years from the other empires. Now, the other empires were linear. They were stuck together. And uh, it's just an amazing thing to me that they can make this separation. But in chapter 2, for example, you've got this statue that specifically is talking about four empires, specifically mentions that, and uh, the head, the the uh, the chest, the legs, uh, yeah, the, the, the waist and the legs, but they stick a fifth empire in the feet. And they say, well, that, that refers to something that will get revived, and they separate the legs from the feet by 1,500 years, you know, from when Rome ceased to the present. And they separate in our chapter here verses 7 and 8 by 1,500 years. And if you've got a great tribulation in the future, you've got to be able to have that separation. I believe it happened linearly, just like the text normally indicates, and it was the three-and-a-half-year war against Jerusalem. But anyway, I want you to notice, read with me, please, verse 8. I want you to notice how it's worded. I was considering the horns... Now, which horns would he be considering? has to be the horns that he's just finished looking at, right? So he's considering those horns, and those horns are clearly in the first century. And it says, And there was another horn, a little one, 
coming up, notice it's not thousands of years after them, but coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns, not some horns that are going to be 2,000 years later, but among whom three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. Can you see that? It's not talking about some future antichrist who might come along. It is talking about an anti-Christian figure that relates sometime in that period in the first uh, century A.D. or B.C. He goes on, he says, And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. And as Calvin mentions, it is a reference to Caesar and specifically leading up to, uh, I believe, to uh, Nero. But we'll get to that later. What I want to do is uh, not get to the interpretation, because if you look at verses 15 and following, you'll see the interpretation is given to Daniel. That's where we're going to finally interpret it. But what I want to do now is I want to have um, uh, some summary material of what we can take home from verses 1 through 8. Here's a black, black backdrop against the bright light of verses 9 through 15 that's so encouraging. Why would God put verses 1 through 8 in there? Let me give you seven uh, lessons you can take home. First, if God was in complete control during the terrible, terrible period of those four empires, He's in control now. We can trust Him. Secondly, if God was not taken by surprise back then, He not only predicted the future, He controlled the future, He's not going to be taken by surprise now. We can trust Him. Thirdly, if God provided for His people during the period when there was apostasy, there was deterioration, things were getting worse and worse leading up to the cross of Christ, surely we can trust Him to be providing for His people during this era that verses 9 through 15 talks about, as, uh, as there is an upward movement as the nations are being discipled by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can trust Him. Fourth, if God warns us not to put our trust in those kinds of governments then, if we see governments beginning to act with the tyranny that Greece and Rome and Babylon uh, did, then we need to make sure we do not put undue trust and confidence in the state, that we don't fall into the trap of making the state our Savior. Only Jesus Christ is our Savior And as the psalmist said, put no confidence in princes. They can and they will let you down, especially if you're putting undue optimism in them. Fifth, governments must be tamed and they will be tamed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll spend more time on that next week. But they must be tamed. We can't just say, oh, well, it's it's okay. We don't need to worry about what governments do. Uh, God, you know, there are many Christians who feel that uh, God doesn't really have anything to say to, to governments. And if they're wicked, if they're righteous, fine. If they're wicked, fine. All we have to do is we need to submit to them and go along. But we say, no, we've got to be loving. We've got to be light and they must be tamed. I think we need to lay hold of that. Sixth, we can thank the Lord that God has chosen to reverse history with the cross of Christ rather than repeating history. And we'll look at that more fully next week. But what we can keep in our minds, when we see the awe and the 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 incredible uh, majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ as He replaces the tyranny of those beasts with the principles of His own kingdom, it causes our hearts to well up. What a great king we have. We're not dealing with a small king. We are dealing with the one who is king of kings and lord of lords over all of history, and he is one that we can trust. Seventh and lastly, we need to have 
patience. And this is so hard for Christians to have patience. But verse 12 says that at Christ's resurrection, here's what it says, as for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. See, there are other beasts besides those four that are mentioned there. And they're not going to be overcome all at once. Christ's strategy is a gradual increase. Isaiah 9 says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end as the gospel goes into all of the world. The Great Commission strategy is not just discipling individuals out of nations, but discipling the nations themselves. And that process takes us to the end of the age. He says, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And we can praise the Lord for that. That's what I want to leave you with, the encouraging note that when Christ sends us out into the jungle, he comes along with us. And Christ, the animal tamer, is a person that no animal can withstand. And we can praise the Lord for that. Let's pray.